Hello, Husky fans. This is Max Cerullo, and you are listening to another episode of Yes, UConn, the podcast where we dive deep into the greatest UConn basketball games ever played. And today we're taking it all the way back. We are going to talk about the 1988 NIT championship over Ohio State. It was the first uh, tournament championship that UConn and basketball had ever won. And uh, t- joining us today to talk about it is uh, Dom Amore from the Hartford Current. And uh, Dom, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, you covered this game, did you not? I did. Uh, I was a uh, young reporter. I, I was actually the sports editor of the Milford Citizen at the time. The Citizen, uh, which no longer exists, was a, an afternoon newspaper uh, that came out every day but Saturday. Uh, it was the smallest circulation paper in Connecticut. And I was a one-person staff. I was the only full-timer. Uh, so I, uh, but I, I really wanted to cover UConn, even though our, our, our focus was Milford. Um, I wanted to attach myself to the Horde, which at that time had, I think, 14 daily newspapers traveling with UConn. You know, Meriden and Norwich and Stanford and Greenwich, these were all separate uh, entities they weren't uh, parts of chains like they are now so there were 14 different writers covering UConn for every paper in Connecticut Milford I think was the only one that didn't we were the smallest and I decided that I wanted to uh, to, to join the horde so I did uh, when I could and I was able to get to that um, to that game at Madison Square Garden and I basically went right from there to the office in Milford and and then you know uh, designed and laid out the paper after writing the story so it was quite a night that's awesome well it sounds like you got in right on the ground floor because i mean we're talking about this game because this is really when uconn basketball as we know it today was really born you know this season you know this was only jim calhoun's second season you know before this point they were you know they're in the big east but they're kind of a bottom feeder for the most part And then you have this, you know, I wouldn't even say this incredible season, but certainly this incredible tournament run. And then when all is said and done, you kind of have the stage set for, you know, two years later, you have the dream season and then, you know, you're off to the races at that point. Um, Yeah, yeah, it it was, uh, you know, UConn had made a run to the final eight back in 1977 under D. Rowe. And got a lot of national attention there. But, you know, Dean retired and uh, the great team being put together with Tony Hansen and Joey Welton and people like that really kind of captured uh, the, the imagination of Connecticut and put UConn on the map a little bit. And, and that really uh, gave the program the credibility to be invited to the Big East. You know, the story goes that Holy Cross was invited first and when Holy Cross turned it down, UConn joined. So in those early years in the Big East with Dom Perno as the coach, a lot of sentiment, you know, much, much like what you hear today about, about UConn football, after several years of losing, a lot of people wondered what the heck UConn was doing in this conference. So they couldn't compete or recruit the kind of players they needed to, you know, to, to, to compete with Syracuse and, and St. John's and Georgetown with Patrick Ewing and, and all of those teams. So UConn was, as you mentioned, uh, perennially at the bottom of the conference. And uh, Don Perno was let go. Jim Calhoun was hired from Northeastern. And, you know, year one, UConn finished 9-19. and 19, But 
uh, you could see it was it was very evident that much like Dan Hurley's first year, the, the game closer, more competitive, team team was playing harder, uh, that things were going in the right direction. Year two was a struggle. Uh, they were, I believe, they were six and twelve in the Big East that year, not 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 playing particularly well. But they got hot at the end and nabbed the the NIT bid with a. 15 and 14 record and then they just went on from there so it's kind of an interesting setup to get there Matt. yeah you know it's funny so you, i want to just go back real quick to what you're talking about uh, your experience covering the team so 14 you know the horde had like 14 beat writers and i'm a little I'm, i have to say i'm kind of impressed that it was that big even that early because you know this is like you the team is being covered like an nba team basically even though it's not that good yet so I know maybe before we kind of dive in too much to the game, can you tell me about the dynamic of how UConn basketball was covered and perceived statewide at this stage? Well, you know, it it's kind of speaks to the unique uh, nature of the Connecticut market. You know, Connecticut is a, obviously a small state area-wise, uh, but it is pretty densely populated, and it has a lot of small but significant cities, cities big enough to have their own daily newspaper even today. And in those days, um, you know, the Associated Press didn't necessarily, uh, you know, cover every college team, UConn being a, a bottom feeder in the Big East, as we've mentioned. Um, you know, you want, you know, these newspapers were not necessarily going to get enough from the Associated Press. So, it was kind of imperative for each of these papers to have their own writer at a home game, at least. And and when UConn really started to become, uh, you know, more popular in the Big East, it became uh, imperative that, that they travel. So you know, you had, as I say, the Meriden Record Journal, the North, Peter Abraham, who was obviously now pretty famous as the baseball writer at the Boston Globe, but he began his career as the UConn beat writer in those days with the Norwich Bulletin, you know, it had its own, you know, New London then and now had its own writer. But, you know, and all of the, the papers now owned by Hearst, those were all separate independent papers. So, you know, Stamford, Greenwich, Danbury, etc., Torrington, they had their own writers. So it, it, it was a revelation to the teams that UConn played particularly their, their coaches in a press conference or their, their SIDs because, you know, these schools that are maybe used to having a couple of reporters at games now had to make room for 14 writers, visiting writers, <laughs> or as many as 14 visiting writers. So uh, that's, you know, that's where the nickname the Horde came from. And, you know, today it's really not a Horde. There's only four or five of us. But, uh, but in those days it was crazy. And everybody, everybody was writing their own story and the locker rooms were open. So you could work the locker room and everybody came away with their own version of things after, after games. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, again, I, I later covered, you know, the Giants and the Yankees beats that had a lot of people on it. But, uh, but the UConn horde was uh, I, I, the, even, I don't think there's ever been very many teams that had 14 different beat writers covering them. Certainly not in college basketball, that's for sure. So this season had another interesting dynamic too. So, you know, like we said, the Big East was pretty loaded this year. So UConn's conference record was maybe a little bit deceptive. But once they get to the Big East tournament, you have a couple of interesting games. I, if You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe they won five games in fairly quick succession to win the NIT. Is that right? Yeah, 
So uh, along the way, so in this final, you know, against Ohio State, obviously a great game. Uh, the night before, you have BC, where UConn beats Dana Barros and, you know, a pretty good Eagles team in what had to have been, you know, a pretty satisfying victory for UConn, especially back in those days, I'm sure BC was considered to be a superior program. And before, but before that, there's one other game that was, I actually didn't know much about until I did the research on this pod for this podcast. There was the VCU game that was played at the field house. And from what I hear, that, that game was absolutely wild. Were you at that game too? Yes, I was. Uh, and it was absolutely wild. And, um, you know, back, back in, in those days uh, with the NIT, uh, the NIT basically made its own rules. Uh, it was, it was, and made them up as they went along, essentially, because it was a tournament that was, you know, kind of privately run, uh, you know, by invitation. And they tried to set things up to get the biggest crowds. So they, you know, they, they re, redid the bracket after every round to try to come up with the matchups that either made sense geographically or, or might, uh, uh, you know, create the biggest crowds. They would also uh, consider, you know, what teams drew the most or had the biggest followings. So, so you, there was no way to, to, to fill out a bracket like you would today because you didn't know who would be playing who. But when you looked at the, at the tournament, you kind of felt like UConn, BC, and, and, and Ohio State were the biggest names in it. And they were going to try to find a way to get, to get those teams at the Garden because that would be, uh, those would be the draws at, at the Garden. So I believe that UConn started the tournament at, at West Virginia and won a very close, I think an overtime game, a very close game, I want to say the score was 62-57. Uh, and then and then I believe the second game was at, at home, was at the XL Center, or the Civic Center at the time. But when it came down to that <clears throat> that, that uh, quarterfinal game, or that third game, uh, the, the, the XL Center was not available. Uh, I, believe, I believe the Whalers were, you know, or, or, or there was maybe something... Uh, you know, uh, something on ice, uh, Disney on was, ice or something like that. Right. <laughs> so the, the XL center was not available. And for whatever reason, they couldn't play the game at Virginia Commonwealth. So they did indeed stage the game in the old field house, which is where, you know, UConn rarely played, uh, big games. I mean, it, the big East wanted no part of the field house. They had to play those games in the XL center. That's that's uh, that's why Gamble was built because without without a better facility than that, the Big East didn't want games there. So UConn wasn't playing Big East games at the uh, at the Fieldhouse, and they weren't playing any high majors at the Fieldhouse at that point, let alone a postseason game. So they were they were playing you know maybe old Yankee Conference opponents or, or mid majors or you know U Hart or teams like that. That's who would play at the at, at the Fieldhouse, and it held about four or 5,000 people, uh, and it was rarely full. Well, for this game, by now, people had begun to catch on. Uh, people in Connecticut were very excited about the NIT. UConn hadn't done that in a few years. Uh, they were excited about the way they were playing, about the way you know Tate George was playing and Phil Gamble and, and, and all of those players. And um, they, so when this game was played, 
I mean, everybody and their cousin wanted to be in that building. And the building was absolutely overwhelmed. It was filled to, to, the, to the max. And it was so loud in there that the dust that had gathered on, on the rafters shook down and rained over the rained over the uh, over the court so it looked like a snowstorm inside oh my or, god or like a dry ice uh, you know stunt you know you know some kind of pyrotechnics that's so uh, disgusting and so awesome at the same time <laughs> yeah. yeah it was actually it was actually dust on the court man you know in addition to the normal having to wipe down any water or sweat off the court they had to continually sweep the court to keep it to keep it dust free, uh, but it was an incredibly loud, exciting game. UConn won it. I remember the best player on on Commonwealth was named um, Phil Skinny. He was a very very good player. I, I think he might have had a, a short stint with the Knicks, or, or, or I probably played overseas. But I, I can always I just still remember Jim Calhoun after the game talking about how good Stinney was and just saying, "Oh, he, he he's a player." He's a flat-out player, you know. That was uh, that was his uh, his take on that. But it was a, and I also remember the Virginia Commonwealth coach saying, "Man, I don't know about the place in Hartford, but they should just play all their games in here. You you can't beat them in this place, you know, because it was such a huge crowd right on top of you." So yeah, that was that was an exciting night, and that's when you probably had the had that that mania that UConn became. That's probably where it really began. Yeah, I can't even imagine what that could have been like. Because I mean, I've been in the field house lots of times to like run laps and stuff, and the idea that you could fill thousands of people to watch a postseason basketball game in there is just ludicrous to me. So that must have been quite a scene. Um, well, it was it was it was configured differently then. You know, now it's been kind of reconfigured and renovated as a as as a student uh, operation. But uh, it, it was it was very it was configured it was configured as an indoor campus arena, you know. Uh, and I know they held uh, I used to cover state open track meets in their high school events, and they would occasionally have have high school games there. But yeah, but it was um, yeah, but but it, it it was full as full as it could be, and and uh, something that but I probably had not seen since the days of like West Ballasugna and people like that. Toby Kimball were playing for UConn. Yeah, no, for sure. So the next thing, uh, you know, if that was sort of the birth of Husky Mania, like you said, so the next couple games you're in Madison Square Garden, and I had to say that was a very familiar scene to me. And, um, you know, just UConn fans were packing the place. They were talking on the broadcast about how the, um, you know, fans were on the Metro North. And it's like that's exactly what happens today or, or at least what used to happen and hopefully will happen again starting you know, next, next year. Uh, so, you know, that, that, wh- what was that like, I guess, to, first of all, just the, the, the period at Madison Square Garden overall? Yeah. Well, you know, to, to kind of set that up, I was, you know, I was taking the train to the games. Uh, I, w- I was taking the, uh, the Metro North and it didn't occur to me that the, um, the, the trains would be absolutely packed with UConn supporters and, and, if I remember right, I think I was on a train with Big Red going to either the semifinal or the final, and he was going through the train and everybody was going crazy uh, over Big Red. I, I, I believe he, he, if it wasn't Big Red, it was it was 
whoever was the, the somewhat equivalent of what he is at the time. Uh, but but there, there are guys that were going. But yeah, the the, the the trains were loaded with UConn fans, and the sidewalks on the way to uh, from Grand Central to the Garden were loaded with UConn fans. So it was going to be a very heavy UConn contingent there. I mean, Boston College, you know, traveled pretty well, and, and Ohio State too. But uh, it was uh, that that was probably the first time that you saw uh, the Metro North loaded with UConn fans. So that's the, the, those trips were crazy. And in the Garden, it was almost all UConn. I mean, the fans, UConn fans snapped up the tickets. You know, the NIT didn't sell out. It didn't sell well. So there were, there were tons and tons of tickets available. Uh, secondary market, although we didn't call it that. And so UConn fans really, the games, the, UConn fans pretty much filled the building. For that, for the those Boston, for those two games, and particularly the second game. Once, once they beat Boston College, everybody grabbed every ticket they possibly could from the BC fans, and 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 it seemed like the whole state of Connecticut was there for the Ohio State game. Oh man, it sure seemed like it. So let's uh, talk about the team real quick to kind of set the stage for the Ohio State matchup. So this team, you know, your your centerpiece is Cliff Rob uh, Clifford Robinson. He had 29 points in the BC game, and obviously he went on to have a very very long and successful NBA career. Uh, you got several guys from the dream season who kind of made their mark here. You've got guys like Tate George and Lyman DePriest. A couple older guys, Phil Gamble was there, and uh, Jeff King. Uh, and, you know, a handful of others. It, it seems to me it was a pretty eclectic group because this not everybody here was necessarily a Calhoun recruit, but it felt like a Calhoun team. So is a, how, how did, I guess, this team come together and sort of what was their dynamic? Well, you know, the, 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 nine, and, um, the 9 and 19 team the year before was sort of marred because uh, George, uh, or rather uh, Phil Gamble and, and Robinson were, were academically ineligible. Uh, but they were the two guys who were the last great recruits or last big recruits for Don Perno, and, and Calhoun inherited them. And he was very hard on them. He was very tough on them. Um, but he made them better players. And, of course, he, supp- he began supplementing them with his own recruits. And, um, and so... So the, the, the second year of Calhoun, much like the second year of Dan Hurley, was kind of a split of guys he inherited who he had now began to mold in his own image and the players coming in from scratch that he was molding uh, in his own image. Um, but Gamble and George, uh, I remember, really played well together in that backcourt. Uh, and George made a huge difference in getting the ball inside the cliff and that that made him a much a much better player uh and and the priest brought the, the toughness that calhoun wanted and thought yukon was lacking so just in, in those three guys right there uh you know you also had murray williams coming in which was a kind of a bit kind of an under the radar but historically but a guy was a big recruit for yukon to get from uh uh you know from from torrington so all of those were, um, it, it, it was, a, it was a, a, a mix and match kind of thing, but it was the kind of team, it, it, was, it was, as you mentioned, players Calhoun inherited that were making, he was making 
those kind of players and players that uh, that he brought in himself. And it was a it was a very it was a very good mix once they got once they kind of got established late in the season. Yeah, absolutely. So you get to the finals, and we have Ohio State. Um, so I have to admit, I don't know very much about this Ohio State team. Uh, as far as the players go, I don't recall any of them standing out as far as like big name future NBA guys. But the guy who did stand out, of course, is the coach, Gary Williams, who would, you know, of course, later go on to coach Maryland, won a national championship and uh, beat UConn in the 2002 season in the Elite Eight. So Obviously, he, he got his revenge there. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, what what do you just so you know for people who haven't you know seen this game? What was sort of Ohio State's deal at this point? Uh, I believe Grady Mateen was on that team. Um, they had they had a couple of pretty good players. I mean, they were they were a middle of the pack, you know, Big Ten team. And uh, you know, at this time, and and they still had a um, a pretty good. You know, they, they, they still had a brand. You know, they, you know, when you thought of Ohio State, I know for me, I tended to think of the games that uh, I tended to think of, of Jerry Lucas playing for the Knicks because he was part of the 1960 Ohio State, you know, uh, championship team. I think Havlicek was on that team, obviously. But I always, I always kind of equated somehow uh, Ohio State with, with the guard because they were a perennial, they were a perennial NIT or, uh, or, 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 a, uh, NCAA team. Uh, but, but it was, that was a, a pretty good solid Ohio State tag. I remember Grady Mattina, he was six, eight, six, nine. He was the guy that Cliff was going to have to deal with. Um, but before they got there, they had, as you mentioned, they had a, they had to beat Dana Barrows and that was Lyman Priest's big moment. Yeah, I remember Jay Burson was the guy who stood out in this game in particular. He yeah. kind of seemed like yeah. sort of their, I don't know, kind of an undersized but scrappy kind of a, you know, dude yeah. who just caused all kinds of problems. It was a, it, it, was, a, it was a good Ohio State team, but I, I do want to touch on that semifinal because, again, part of the NIT's mo was to make sure they had a, a Big East team in the final. So they made sure that they, when they reseeded, that they put UConn against Boston College in the semifinal to make sure that at least one of those teams would be in the final. And um, uh, Barros, who was their big star, their big scorer, was killing uh, UConn in the first half. And Jim put Lyman Priest, the freshman, on him and challenged him, saying, you've got to shut him down for us to win. And Barros only got one shot off in the second half. DePriest just smothered him. And so UConn, which uh, I believe had, which I believe had lost to uh, Boston College twice during the season, or at least lost to them bat once badly, now it completely turned the tide with DePriest on, on Barros. And that's how they got, they got to the final game. That, if you talk to Jim Calhoun about that 1988 team, that's something he will he'll he'll always remember was the, the priest job on Barrows. But yeah, the Ohio State now was the the the, the UConn BC game I believe was the first game of the doubleheader, and now uh, UConn Ohio State was prime time, you know, at the Garden, and uh, and and yeah, it was big. I mean, you mentioned Burston, I know I mentioned Mateen. Uh, don't remember a ton from that Ohio State team. 
except that it was Ohio State, it was Big Ten, and you never dreamed that a UConn team would have a chance against them. No, well, it's funny because, like, you know, you look back and now, you know, with UConn being what they are, you look back at this matchup and it's like, yeah, of course UConn won. You know, Ohio State basketball has obviously got a good tradition, but, you know, it's funny how how things, you know, it was, what, 32 years ago? I mean, that's a little yeah. while, but it's not like like a crazy amount of time, just how, how fast, uh, you know, things kind of took off for UConn. Um, yep. One thing I did, so kind of getting into the game itself, what struck me for sure was just how physical UConn was. And in like the first couple possessions, you know, they came right out. And I think their first two baskets were a Cliff Robinson and a Lyman DePriest dunk. And they were pretty like authoritative ones too. Um, yeah. So the first half overall was close, uh, but UConn did jump out to a pretty big lead. Um, so just, I guess, just to kind of first, I don't know, five minutes or whatever. What do you think? How did you feel about UConn uh, when they came out hot to begin the game? Well, you know what? That was the first of um, many, many times that we saw that of Jim Calhoun coach teams that 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 frenzy that they would start to play with, um, that um, where they they would just um, they they would um, you know they, they they would just there would just be a point where they would start to. to to cause a bunch of turnovers in a short time and just kind of take control of the game with a big, big run that was defense igniting offense. And that's, if I remember correctly, that's kind of what happened there uh, when UConn took the lead in that game. But the physicality was the key. Uh, That's what, with that team, that was not a a talented team in the, in the mold of, of Jim's later teams. As you mentioned, they were players that he inherited, players from Connecticut. Um, there were it was not uh, a, a an elegantly talented team, and they had to win with physicality, physical toughness, and and kind of with, with Lyman DePriest as as a big part of that. Cliff being much tougher, the big guards that they had been able to post up. It was it was a. Um, it was a very, very physical team that got the most out of its limited talent. It was a scrappy team, and that's what I think you saw the culmination of kind of in that game, Mac. They they just out-scrapped and out-hit Ohio State. Yeah, so I was not able to find a box score for this game, but uh, it sure seemed like they forced a lot of turnovers, and it sure seemed like yeah. Ohio State's field goal percentage had to be very low because – just yeah. yeah, they were just getting bodied all the time, and you know, yeah. UConn. Yeah, they great defense. yeah, I mean, UConn. It's not like they shot very well in this game either. They had some issues, but they 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 played pretty well. And so you know, first, uh, I guess it would have been the first six minutes or so. UConn takes a eleven to four lead, capped off by a Phil Gamble three. He had a bunch of yeah. you know, Phil Gamble was very impressive in this game. Yeah, um, yes, he was. But Ohio State, you know, to their credit, they they don't go away. They end up responding with, I believe, a fourteen to two run, and they flip it. So they end up pulling ahead eighteen to thirteen. You know, with uh, I want to say maybe about five minutes left in the half. Um, but you know, yeah. you, you know, as we've seen before, UConn they fight back again. Uh, Gamble hits another three. Uh, you know, Tate George ties it. UConn kind of on a run of its own. And then uh, Gamble hits his third three of the half um, shortly before halftime. Uh, UConn ends up going into the break leading 27 to 25. 
Um, yeah. You know, at, at this at this point in time, at halftime, you know, you what what's the horde thinking at this point? <laughs> well, you know, first of all, I, I probably would point out uh, when the three pointer came in, about Phil Gamble hit the first three pointer in UConn history. He uh, he actually hit the first, and uh, you know, Jim was a little bit. Although Jim was never a big guy at reigning three pointers, but he had he came up with some good set plays to kick it out and get threes, and you know Phil could shoot the three very well. I know he was the MVP of that game of that uh, final four. They also you know, don't forget they also had Steve Peichel on that team, and he was uh, he was a good three point shooter, and they had uh, Tate who could hit three pointers. So. You know, UConn really had a good inside-outside thing, you know, going. And I think as far as what the Horde was thinking, I think after after the, the, the West Virginia game and after the, the VCU game in the, in the dusty uh, field house, and then after the night before when they had so completely turned the tables on Boston College and Dana Barros, I think everyone realized that we were now watching a different team than what we were seeing earlier in the year. This was not the team that was six and 12 in the, in the big East. This was not the team that was under 500 until uh, they, they, they got, I think, I think they beat Brooklyn tech in the last regular season game. And that's how they got over 500 to even be considered for the NIT. But it was pretty evident to all of us that we had seen this transformation and that we were watching something different than what we were watching only a few weeks before. Uh, and really started, you know, again, I think, I think that the people covering that team as well as the people watching it uh, realized that UConn basketball was on its way to becoming something, something different. Sure. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Um, now there is one thing. So when the second half starts, there is something I kind of caught my eye, uh, Cliff Robinson, he gets called for his second foul, like, you know, towards the end of the first half. He gets called for his third almost right away, and then like four minutes in, he gets called for his fourth. And I have to admit, when I was started watching this game, I kind of expected to talk about Cliff Robinson more, but he was actually pretty brutal in this game. I think he only finished with five points, and he you know was he fouled out with like you know a decent amount of time left. So you know this wasn't really you know a Cliff Robinson game, uh, but I feel like we should just talk about him a little bit just because of the role he played in this team and kind of this era of UConn. You know, uh, what, 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 first of all, what happened with Cliff in this game and, uh, you know, kind of what was his MO and, you know, the games where he was good? Well, you know, I, I can't say I have a photo memory of it, but, uh, it, it was probably a combination of, of A, the foul trouble, uh, B, the moment, and C, just Ohio State being a much, you know, being a bigger physical team than maybe some of the other teams that UConn had played along the way. So I think, you know, that was one of the things, in a sense, he, he might have been kind of a sacrificial lamb to uh, Ohio State's big, you know, size and, and physicality. He didn't, it was going to be up to the others to kind of, he, he kind of banged bodies and held his own, but it would be, uh, you know, part of the others. But it would be up to the others to kind of handle the scoring. But if I remember Jeff King, who was kind of the late Jeff King, who was kind of uh Cliff's running mate, as far as being the, the, the guy up front, he was 6'10", uh, had a big game, if I recall. He had a very, very big game. Uh, and I always, you know, I, I can remember one time 
uh, during, I think it was during that season. But Jeff King was always kind of maligned by fans. People thought for some reason he should be better than he was. And I remember going into the locker room asking Cliff a very innocent question about Jeff King. And he just kind of jumped out my throat defending Jeff King. And I think that was kind of Cliff. Cliff was the, the big guy, the leader. Uh, he was the guy that had his teammates' backs. Uh, and I think he developed probably those those traits in the two years under Calhoun. But I think that, uh, you know, my, my guess is that Cliff had, had really grown that year as a locker room leader and a locker and a locker room presence. And I think whatever he did in that specific game probably belies how important he really was to, to the growth that that team made. Yeah, you know, any anything he did to help the team kind of become what it became was pretty evident just in how they responded because, you know, Cl- yeah. Cliff Robinson goes out with four fouls and Ohio State's up 36 to 30. And then yeah. UConn answered with a seven to nothing run immediately. Gamble hits another three, so that puts him up by one. And then, you know, it kind of back and forth you go and eventually you get a 14-5 run where, you know, UConn's back up uh, 44-42. And then not too long after that, they go on another big run, like 13 to 2. That puts them up by 11 with about four four minutes to play. And most of this is happening with Cliff on the bench. That's incredible. And, like, you know, at the time, this would have seemed insane just considering, you know, there was no no precedence for, you know, a performance like that. Um, Jeff King was a huge part of it. Steve Peichel hits a three at one point to kind of extend the lead. You know, Phil Gamble, I think he must, like I said, I don't have the box score, but I, I think he must have had like five threes because he hits another one at some point. Yeah. Well, he was the MVP. And, um, yeah, he, he had a fantastic game. And, and you know, UConn just, um, that was another earmark of, of, the, uh, of the, the later Connecticut teams that were so successful was that finishing kick, you know. Uh, think about how many times you, you watched UConn under Jim and even under Kevin Ollie, when they had their success, how often they would virtually shut a team, maybe even shut a team out for the last four or five minutes of the game and maybe come from three or four points down and end up winning, winning going away. Uh, so the combination of, of Jim's, the toughness that Jim instilled, the, the running and the, and the conditioning that they did, and the grueling season of playing in the Big East and, you know, that was their 34th game. I believe that was their 34th or 35th game, um, which was very unusual then uh, to play that many games, certainly for a UConn team. So they really had the, they had the finishing kick. And, and, you know, Ohio State just ran out of gas. And UConn kind of was gripped by another one of those frenzies that we talked about, turning the ball over, great defense, igniting the offense. And then, you know, maybe for the first time uh, the new, with the new rules, the three-pointer taking center stage for you. Yeah. Now, uh, Ohio State, if they ran out of gas, they at the very least did their best to kind of push the car, you know, down the road to the finish line because they did make a game yeah. of it. And I, it was a little – it had to have been a bit stressful. You know, even though UConn pretty much maintained at least a two-possession lead the rest of the way – you know, Ohio State does hit a three to cut it to six points and, you know, give him a chance. There's a steal in a basket with a minute and 30 left. You know, um, another three-pointer now, you know, and then I think UConn did, they, they were able to keep keep them at arm's length, but it definitely wasn't a gimme. I think it was within a three-point game with under 20 seconds to play. 
And, uh, you know, under situations like this, you know, you can see a good team fold and UConn didn't, they, they hit their free throws. They, you know, broke the press and got some baskets and I guess ultimately kind of did scratch and clawed their way to the win. Um, do you, do you, do you remember what you were thinking at this point when maybe it was in the final seconds, finally clear that UConn was going to win the game? <laughs> trying to remember what I was thinking 30 seconds ago, but, uh, um, you know, it was one of those games that, um, yeah, I mean, it reached the point where you knew they were going to win. You knew they weren't going to blow it. Um, you had the way they were playing, the way they were hitting every big shot. Uh, guys were making the big foul shots. I think Tate George was huge at the line down the stretch of that game, if I remember. Um, and uh, you know, I would say that once once they were up a lobby, certainly when they were up eleven with four minutes to go, you knew it was possible that they could that they could blow it. But you didn't sense that Ohio State had the kind of explosiveness offensively to be able to you know, to, to overcome that deficit and, and win in dramatic fashion. It was more a case of you didn't really see anything from Ohio State to indicate that, that UConn was in trouble, even though Ohio State was certainly talented enough uh, and a big enough deal. I mean, they were favored, I believe, in the game. Uh, that, you know, you knew it wasn't going to be over until, until, as Yogi says, it was over. But you didn't really see... And UConn was in trouble down the stretch, as I remember. Yeah, no, definitely. And then, you know, obviously once uh, Ohio State had one last chance, I think, with like 10 seconds left. And, you know, those those chances all kind of fell by the wayside. And then next thing you know, Murray Williams is in the corner, just chucks the ball up into the air. UConn wins 72 to 67. And what follows is maybe one of the best UConn celebrations, I think, ever. The fans stormed the court at Madison Square Garden. That's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. you have like Phil Gamble, Jeff King, and Spider Ursary all climb up to the top of the basketball hoop. Yeah. That like that picture of them all up there is is really in something yeah. else. I mean, yeah, an iconic photo. Yeah, like yeah. Wh- what was that like? Because that's, I mean, to me, if I was, you know, I got to I got a chance to see uh, a court storming at like Rensselaer Field once, and it was like kind of interesting and kind of funny, but. Yeah. This was like, whoa, like, you know, storming a court at Madison Square Garden just doesn't happen. So, you know, how, what was that like just to be on, be on the scene and, and amid that whole swarm of people? Well, yeah, it, it was it was a little frightening, a little frightening. It was a little, you know, it was a little unusual to see, you know, Connecticut uh, just take over a New York venue. You know, I mean, that was, the, I mean, you know, New York venues in those days, that was a day, of, those were, that was an era where, you know, fan control was a big, big concern. Uh, you know, you had the, the Bear Night Riot in Cleveland uh, in the 70s. But, you know, you can remember the games at, at Yankee Stadium where, um, you know, the, the crowd, you know, rushed the field and Chris Chambliss couldn't get around the bases when he hit the, pennant winning home run or the crowd rushing the field in, in, in 1977 after the world series. And it was an era when, you know, certainly in the outdoor stadiums, uh, policemen on horseback had to ring the stadium to try to control the crowd after a New York team won. Now, now you're in Madison square garden and you never would have believed that a, a team from Connecticut and Connecticut fans would, 
would stage that same kind of display at, 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 at on that floor. But it spoke to a how much bigger the NIT was then than it is today. NIT was a big deal. It, was, it wasn't as big a deal as it was maybe in the 40s and 50s when it was more prestigious than the NCAA. But it was still a, it still was a big deal. And winning it was a big deal for UConn uh, where after what they, where they had come from the previous seven or eight years in the Big East, um, the fans were, were all over it. Uh, it was probably, you know, the, the, it was probably the most notable you know, moment in Connecticut sports history up to that time. I can't think of another uh, another team from Connecticut that generated that. I mean, I guess I guess you could say maybe some of the great Yale football victories, uh, you know, over Army or, or, or teams like that. But uh, that that was it, it was an incredibly significant moment in 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 sports history, and to be a part of it and see it was something that you never forgot. And the players were afraid. Players were worried. I know. I've talk, talked to. I've talked to all of them. I did a story on the 25th anniversary of it, which was kind of weird in itself. It was the first time I ever did a anniversary story about something I covered, and uh, it was just, um, you know, they, they climbed up, up the backboard because they were worried about getting, you know, kind of bull rushed by the fans, and that's why they they went up there. And and you know, uh, Gamble and uh, and Jeff King helped uh, Spider up to be the third guy. And you really worry because they were up there a good long time. You really worry that the thing was going to collapse and that they, they were going to get badly hurt and the fans that fell on were going to get badly hurt. And I remember, I remember thinking that because the thing was swaying and it wasn't, it was not designed to, to have three, three big athletes sitting on. Yeah. If it might, if you, if I recall correctly, this was back before they'd reinforced those backboards too. Cause like Shaq was like pulling them down every time he dunked. So you put three guys up there. I I can't imagine it was necessarily the safest thing. No. And in in, in, in fact, I don't believe you've ever seen that since you've never seen players climb up on a backboard and sit up there since, but they were up there, they were sitting up there and, um, you know, if you if you remember the uh, well, you probably don't remember it. Or very, if, you, if you're an old movie buff, an old film noir buff, uh, famous Jimmy Cagney movie called White Heat, and uh, at the end of the movie, he's a gangster. At the end of the movie, he's sitting on top of uh, a big bunch of gas tanks, and and he and he cries out, "Look, ma, I made it, top of the world!" And then the then then the law you know, open fire and, and blew up all the gas tanks that he was sitting on. But it, it reminded me of the last scene of White Heat. And I remember I remember mentioning that to Jim Calhoun and he, he got a big kick. Obviously that's kind of his era and he got a big kick out of that out of that reference. But uh, you know they, they it, it wasn't it wasn't the top of the world. Uh, the NCAA was would have been the top of the world. That that came eleven years later. But it was as close to the top of the world as I think many people in Connecticut ever thought UConn was going to get. You mentioned that uh, that that specific reference in your uh, piece that you just mentioned. Uh, I, I read that last night as well. And uh, in that piece, you mentioned that you had a chance to talk to Phil Gamble about it. You know, twenty five years later, uh, Jeff King and Spider Ursary have since passed, and um, 
you know, so I, I guess, uh, you know, I was going to ask you about that is like how, you know, how the players on the team now who I, I believe are now mostly in their fifties, you know, how they look sure. back on this, uh, you know, and given the hindsight of now what came after, you know, between the dream season, the yeah. four NCAA championships and, you know, all, all the, you know, other winning that's happened since. Yeah. Phil, Phil is very, very proud of, uh, of his contributions, uh, to this, with this team and in and, and building what came uh, later. And I think there are times when he might feel a little bit slighted that he's not, maybe not remembered in that, in that pantheon of UConn greats. But again, given where the program had to come from and how important that NIT uh, was, he deserves to stand, um, you know, as one of the most important, figures in, in the history of the program and in the building and the growth of the program. Uh, and he was, uh, he did come back to Gamble when Ohio State played there a few years ago and was honored during that game. Um, but I, I, I would like to see uh, maybe a bigger honor for him uh, at, at, at Gamble Pavilion, uh, perhaps. I, mean, I know he, he might not fit all the criteria that they established for the Huskies of Honor, but I feel like he was as important as any player, uh, certainly of that time in, in building UConn. But he was very, very proud of, proud of what he accomplished there. So is Murray Williams, you know, the, the, the Connecticut guys. I think if you, if you ask Steve Peichel, he would probably tell you it was one of the highlights of his time, uh, of his career. Uh, you know, like I said, there were more Connecticut people there. And, you know, guys like Chris Smith, and, uh, and Scott Burrell uh, were now attracted to come to UConn because of that team and what that team did. So the, the, the domino effect that that game had on the program was, you know, immense. I think today, if, a, if an up-and-coming program won an NIT, it would be, hey, this is nice, you know, maybe there'll be better days coming, etc. But that was a, was a huge, huge deal. And there's no question that what happened in the dream season uh, was very much a large part of, of what happened there, even though there was a delay. <clears throat> because the next year, UConn went back to the NIT, and that was a disappointment because everybody thought that they were now on their way to the NCAA. Yeah, no. So Phil Gamble, I mean, you want to talk about a player who's aged well in terms of the, you know, their play style. You know, he finishes with 25 points. He's the, you know, uh, NIT Final Four MVP. Just, uh, you know, he's one of those guys, I guess, just watching the game. I was like, that guy could play today. Like he, he'd fit in today's style. Like, you know, definitely a, a solid all around player who does all seems to do all the things that we value in basketball today. So, you know, when you watch these games in the, like the 80s and the early 90s, you can be kind of hit or miss with that because sometimes those great players, you know, you might watch them now and just be like, well, that, they're really good in their era. But like, you know, you couldn't put you couldn't put him on the floor because he can't shoot now or something like that. Yeah, so, right. Phil, you know, Phil Gamble, obviously, you know, anybody who hasn't heard of him or seen him, you know, watch him play. They, they, he was good. And uh, it's like you said, Dom, you know, he's what his contributions are. You know, they led to a lot of what came, you know, in, even a few years later. Um, 
So I, I want to just kind of t- t- tie this season to kind of the, to the present day. This past season, feel like it felt like it had some parallels to this team in a lot of ways. Um, you know, this team, uh, this year's team was coming off some losing seasons. It's really the first time that you kind of gone through a losing stretch since the Don Perno days. And at the end of this season, they started to kind of turn things around and catch fire. And they, they won their last five games, I believe. And I mean, obviously, they didn't get a chance to prove what they could do in the tournament because of the pandemic. But I feel like if they if they had had the chance, they certainly would have had a good opportunity to win the uh, American Conference Tournament. And, you know, even if they didn't and if they, say, wind up in the NIT, if this team had, say, like, let's say hypothetically this year's team had won- made the NIT and won it, do you think that that would have been not, not as monumental, but do you feel like it would have been celebrated in a maybe kind of a equivalent type of way by current fans who would have looked at yeah. it as a real validation of where the team is going? Yeah, no, I think you're right, Mac. I think there were a lot of parallels as this season was coming along. Um, because the, the regular season played out very similarly to that regular season. Uh, you know, it's kind of started out with a lot of, with a lot of losses, a lot of tough losses. And you, you started to feel, okay, well, yeah, maybe they're getting better in Calhoun's second year, but it's the same old thing. They can't get over the top. They can't win. They can't beat anybody good. And then uh, in a game at the Carrier Dome, uh, they, they came on late. I think they came from 10 points down. And they, uh, they ended up winning the game, I think, 51-50 on, uh, on a couple of cliff free throws after time, with no, no time on the clock. And that was when, uh, that was kind of got them over the top. Finally got them over the hump. The way maybe a couple of the games in January and February did this year. Okay, now, they not only can they compete with these teams, they can get over the top and beat them. And that's when they started to win a little bit more consistently, winning enough games to get in. Um, but yeah, no, I thought that if, if this year's team got into the NIT, and made a run, it would have been very much like that because the NIT would have been welcome uh, after the three years below 500, and it would have been great game experience for the guys who are coming back. It would have been a great, uh, it would have been a great finish to uh, the career of, of Christian Vital and 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 Altarica at UConn. Uh, so I think in, in many ways, it wouldn't, you're right, it would not have been as monumental. Uh, you know, we were talking about the celebration in 88. Uh, they built a big bonfire on campus at like four in the morning when the bus arrived. Yeah, it was a big, big deal. But um, it wouldn't have been like that. But I, but I do think that there was a lot of similarities that the, 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 the growth that this team might have achieved in the NIT uh, would have helped the way the 88 team helped to create the 90 team. Well, hopefully we'll see a similar impact going forward. And just for the record, for anybody who's listening, I do believe that they would have won the American Conference Tournament, so would have made the NIT a little bit kind of a, a moot point at that point. But even still, just well, like... They certainly had as good a chance as anybody. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I was so sad. <laughs> I was so bummed. I mean, I was all season long, I was just so looking forward to seeing what they were capable of. And I really believe that if they got a chance, they could have done something special. But yeah, it is what it is, you know. 
Um, so I uh, want to talk about the broadcast. Um, so Bruce Beck and Bill Raftery are your commentators, uh, a young Bill Raftery. And, um, you know, they, they did a good job. But one thing that struck me was um, there was... When I, as you know, Don, whenever I watch one of these old games, I always get kind of uh, tripped up by some of the broadcast uh, customs of the time. But one thing that struck me was that they did a call and poll, um, like basically like, hey, who do you think is going to win the final four? So you have Arizona, Duke, Kansas and Oklahoma are your you know choices. And instead of like texting or tweeting or doing something like you do now. They gave you four phone numbers so you could call in the you could call these numbers and you get charged a dollar to do so. Like I don't know. That Yeah, the 1-900 numbers, right? That's exactly right, yeah. <laughs> so to so, that stuck that stuck out to this millennial cuz I don't think that was even still a thing by the time like the mid to late 90s were, you know, when I was actually paying attention. Uh, I, I don't know, do you have any, I don't that not really a, that's not really a question behind that. I guess I'm just wondering if what your thoughts on <laughs> stuff like that was. Well, you know, that's again, that's how it was then. And uh you know, the the, the 1-900 numbers uh you know, a lot of young people would think that that was like the 1-800 number was free. And so they would call things like sports phone or, or score phone, um, uh, you know, uh, and, and get scores or get updates and stuff with the 1-900 number, uh, thinking that it was free. And then, of course, and, and in mo- most cases, it was a lot more than a dollar. Uh, and so very often, you know, parents would get phone bills with for like thousands of dollars because their kid was you know, was calling these one, one, nine hundred numbers. For, oh my you know, God. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, that, that was the thing there, but yeah, the, the, um, yeah, th- things were obviously very primitive back in the stone ages when, when I was, uh, when I was covering these things, but, uh, yeah, it, it was, uh, yeah. And, and you know, D Rowe, D Rowe would often do the, uh, the color commentary on Yukon local telecasts during the season. And I believe he was on the radio quite a bit. I believe he was on the radio then. I think John Stashauer was the radio voice that year. Um, but D. Rowe coined the phrase that UConn's on a magic carpet ride. And uh, indeed they were. That, 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 was, uh, that was at 88-team. But yeah, the, the, obviously I was watching the game, so I, had no, I have no recollection. I didn't realize Bruce Beck uh, did that game. But, uh, but you know, Beck and Raftery. Raftery was top of the line at that point and and uh yeah that was um that must have been a pretty interesting interesting telecast and and you know th- those those guys the national people were just beginning beginning to get to know jim calhoun just beginning to get to know uh his his various characteristics and quirks and 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 his talents and uh that was the thing it was kind of a real Coming, you know, the Connecticut folks got to know Jim Calhoun when he came to UConn with Northeastern and beat them, which is probably a big reason that he was at the front of the line to get the job uh, after that season. Uh, and I think the nation started to get to know, you know, you know Jim uh, in that in that NIT. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so I guess just kind of one more thing to wrap up. Um, so who was the top dog in this game? Who would you say, uh, you know, was the quote unquote winner for this one? Uh, well, I mean, it's gotta be Phil, uh, Phil Gamble. Uh, you know, Phil has gone on, uh, in life. He's had some ups and downs in life. He's had some tragedies in his life. He's had some, uh, 
some problems in his life, but uh, he's a, if you know him, he's an exceptional guy, an exceptional man. Uh, he's overcome all of these things, and he got married recently, and he's he's living in uh, in the Carolinas, and uh, he's really kind of I think he's he's a guy that really uh, he, I think he was a great example then and now of of the perseverance that made UConn what it was. And uh, that was his shining moment. And it's uh, a shining moment that he has a right to remember proudly for the, for the rest of his life. And I know he does, but uh, that was one of the things about, you know, about covering the team then and then writing about it later and covering the team later is getting, getting to know Phil Gamble is certainly a, a, you know, privilege in my life. And, And I think he was, I think he's the big winner of, uh, coming out of this game, even though it, at times he probably didn't realize it until until much later. No, absolutely. Well, Don, thanks so much. This has been a lot of fun. I guess uh, w- w- before I let you go, anything else on this game or anything else in general you'd like to add? <laughs> no, it's just that it was it was a it was an unforgettable moment. Certainly, one of the unforgettable moments of, of, of my career. And I just remember. Um, uh, bumming a ride off of Tom McCormick of the New Haven Register, driving all the way back uh, late at night, getting into the the offices at the Milford Citizen uh, at about four in the morning and writing my story in my column. I wrote two stories off of it. And then having to do a full shift, putting out, laying out the, the newspaper. You know, today I probably would have collapsed from exhaustion long before getting, uh, doing half of that much, much work. But it was a it was a true all nighter for me, and kind of a memory back to a, a formative time in my life and career, age twenty six, when uh, you know I was really willing to do anything to get a to get a, a toehold in, in the business. So I guess I I, I, I kind of came of age the way the way UConn did. It was a it was a great moment for me as well as well as UConn. Well, that's awesome. I can definitely relate to you know the. Though pulling an all-nighter after a big game, I've certainly done that a few times in my career as well. So, well, uh, awesome. Well, Dom, thanks so much. Uh, Everybody, thanks again for listening. You can follow Dom on uh, Twitter, read him in the Hartford Current, Um, you know, one of the the best in the business, obviously. Um, Yeah, if you want, uh, you know, we'll we'll be putting out another episode next Tuesday as well. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at Max Cerullo, M-A-C-C-E-R-U-L-L-O. Uh, DMs are open, so feel free to hit me up there. And uh, if you want, you can email us at yesuconpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll be back next week, and you guys all have a good one. All right, talk to you all later.